On today's episode of the London Lyceum, I get to talk with Skylar McManus about oneness Pentecostalism, especially as it relates to the Trinity. I think this is really interesting and a fascinating topic, one that is on the minds of a lot of people that I encounter, uh, is what do they believe and how do we really engage it? I think Skylar is on the cutting edge of what's going on here in this theological area because number one he used to be one to spend costalism himself and number two he's putting out a lot of great work himself on this very topic so i think you're really going to enjoy it i think you're going to learn a lot he's very careful he's very generous he's he's very fair uh to not painting caricatures to not uh giving false statements about things but giving the the best foot forward for the view and making helping us to understand what they're saying, why they're saying it, and where they really do struggle. So I think it's really interesting. You're going to really enjoy the episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am your host, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm without Brandon Askew today. He is out with the flu and not the coronavirus for those people who are listening. Uh, I don't. When this releases, I don't know if that's still going to be out there. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Hopefully it's like on the tail end, but uh, right now it's pretty hot and growing. Uh, but he is not, he doesn't have that. So that's the good news, but it's just me. Uh, but we have a really exciting guest to talk to today that I'm really looking forward to, uh, Skylar McManus. And one of the things I like to do with the podcast uh, is, I mean, overall, we want to encourage thinking and all of that, but I like to bring on a variation of different guests. So sometimes we're going to bring on people that you are probably familiar with, and other times we're going to bring on people you're not familiar with, and that may be ver- for various reasons. So we blend a lot of analytic and Baptist and confessional stuff together. So depending on what group you're in, who's listening to this, you may be familiar with Skylar. You may not. Um, I'm going to assume if you're more uh, confessional Baptist niche people, you're probably not as familiar, but if you're more in the analytic theology and you're on Twitter, you might be more familiar. So I'm really uh, looking forward to talking with him though, on the topic of oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, I think this is a fascinating subject and one that I think he has some firsthand experience with. So before I, I, I let everybody know all about him, I'll let you give the chance, you give us the chance to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, I live in the Seattle, Washington area with my wife and two kids. My kids are five and two. I was actually born in southeast Idaho and a number of my family members still live there. I, for my undergraduate work, I went to the University of Washington, and I majored in history and philosophy, and I recently finished my um, Master of Theological Studies degree from Regent University, where I focused in biblical studies, and as it relates to what we're talking about today, my great-grandfather was an ordained minister in the Assemblies of God, and my grandfather basically walked away from religion when he was young and walked away from that background of his. And um, later on, once he married my grandmother, they started attending a Oneness Pentecostal church because of connections through family. And at a camp meeting, my my grandmother was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then my grandfather followed after that, but he sort of tells me he was a bit more obstinate about it, partially because of his Assemblies of God background, but he eventually came around to it, and they've been active in the movement for a long time now. They pastor a church in my hometown in southeast Idaho, um, which they're soon retiring from, but they have uh, uh, been faithful members of the United Pentecostal Church International since I was about five years old. So um, I've been around uh, oneness for basically my entire life, as far as I can ever remember. And it was only somewhat recently in August of 2018 that uh, me and my family left our oneness roots. So before I get into more in-depth questions, I'm curious for personal things. When you say your grandparents pastor a church, does that mean both of them pastor? No, it's, it's actually a I think a common way of speaking, my my grandfather's the pastor, okay, but she's the pastor's wife, so it's just kind of a, a way of of speaking. I I suppose that that they 
both, you know, um, run the church or pastor the church. Okay. And then you said you left your oneness Pentecostal roots in August of 2018. Now we may get into this later as we discuss what oneness Pentecostalism believes and everything, but was there a particular reason that you decided, what is it like a year and a half, two years ish ago to leave? It's, uh, it's kind of hard to nail anything down, but, um, for a number of years, and actually basically since my undergraduate studies, partially because I started to get into analytic theology and philosophy and started reading, you know, more about the Trinity and, and that sort of thing, um, I basically became agnostic on the issue since basically undergrad. Um, and I, I went straight into it from high school. So, I mean, basically from about 20 years old or, or what have you. And it sort of just reached a point to where, um, I mean, my wife and I were both active in music ministry and that sort of thing, and have always sort of uh, kind of plugged ourselves in wherever we could. And after a while, it just um, sort of felt to us like um, it, it wasn't fair for us to um, have some disagreements with those views and continue to do some of the things that we were doing. And, um, it sort of just kind of came to a head around that time. Okay. So nothing in particular, um, you know, we didn't get offended or nobody drove us out or anything like that, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Okay. So I guess to get into the meat of the conversation, can you define what exactly oneness Pentecostalism is and how does that differ from other Pentecostal groups if 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 it does? Because I know there are a lot of different Pentecostal groups out there. Yeah. So I mentioned my uh, familiarity with the UPCI. So there might be some beliefs in, in other oneness groups um, that can differ on, on some of these points. So I'm speaking mostly from my experience, but I think it uh, is largely widespread. Um, with regard to these things. So oneness Pentecostalism, we can break that down into the oneness and into the Pentecostalism. And oneness refers to their theology proper um, or their view of God himself, which is essentially non-Trinitarian. We'll talk more about that later on. But um, that's one way that oneness differs from, from other Pentecostals, like the Assemblies of God. And the term Pentecostalism pretty broadly refers to a group of individuals that believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence for which is speaking in other tongues. And that specifically has its connection with those early restorationist revivals that uh, began around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, there's more there that we can't really get into, but that's kind of how you'd broadly define Pentecostalism. But what makes oneness differ even in that regard? of baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues is that they largely be, uh, believe that it is a necessary condition for salvation. Now, they also hold um, broadly that baptism itself um, by immersion in water is also a necessary condition uh, for salvation. And as a part of their history and really where a lot of this came about, is its connection to being baptized in the name of Jesus only, so not in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and generally, they will deny, even though baptism is a necessary condition for salvation, that it's baptismal regeneration. Um, I'm not totally sure. Um, I'm convinced of that, to be honest, but that's at least um, the claim that they make. Um, one other thing quickly... And I am, I'm not too familiar with other Pentecostal groups on this score, but there's a really strong emphasis in the oneness movement on personal holiness, particularly with regard to the way uh, men and women dress and look. Uh, they main, maintain a very strong distinction between men and women that they believe uh, is, is biblical. And in a lot of ways, what they say is biblical there. Um, but to be more specific, they've sort of had um, the terminology is sort of dress standards or holiness standards. Um, growing up for me, um, it was uh, and and some of these things have changed over time. But uh, for me, 
it was basically everybody should uh, wear long sleeves. You don't want to accentuate your features or anything like that as a man or a woman. Uh, men should have, you know, uh, short hair. Um, and again, when I was growing up, which is not emphasized so much anymore today, uh, men shouldn't have beards. Women wear skirts and dresses and don't wear pants, um, but uh, solely men do. Um, so that's one regard where they might differ with other Pentecostal groups, but that was my experience growing up. I do want to add in that regard, since I've brought it up, that to a lot of um, Western evangelicals, that might sound like a sort of empty uh, legalism or something. But I think a lot of them come to embrace those willingly um, and, uh, and joyfully through Bible study and, and through prayer. Uh, so I don't want to you know, give the impression that it is... Um, you know, something that everybody's forced to do or anything like that. Sure, that makes sense. And I, you mentioned, I think, earlier on about camp meeting. Now, that is, at least I know my mother-in-law grew up in the Wesleyan tradition. Her her father was a Wesleyan pastor, and they had a very specific term. It was always camp meeting. And I had never heard that terminology until I think I started dating my wife and you're using that terminology as well. So I'm assuming that that's a technical term for you guys too. Yeah, sort of. And I think it's sort of, uh, it goes back to those old tent revivals and yeah, that yeah. sort of thing that, that happened. I mean, a lot of these are really just like conferences or what other people would call conferences, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably just a way of speaking a lot of times that has, sort of retained itself but even growing up like some of these places you go to for for the camp meetings um would sort of be out in the middle of nowhere you know so <laughs> fair enough yeah so i guess you know there's a lot of interesting cultural and i guess overall just theological stuff that we could talk about uh, when it comes to what you've kind of gone over i mean i think it's really interesting to think about baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and those other things. But the one thing I'm really interested in, I think for this particular episode is thinking about their view of the Trinity, which you mentioned is part of the catalyst for you guys, I guess, ultimately uh, exiting. Um, so what would you say is the oneness view of the Trinity? Is there a single view and is there a way that they explain it typically? Well, I think that there is a sort of standard way that they they do explain um, the references to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Scripture. That sort of explanation is what I've sort of come to call a, a standard oneness view. Although when you try to think through their views and try to retain as much as possible of what they say. As I've started to think through these things um, from the tools of analytic philosophy and theology, it can be sort of hard to nail down if there is one particular view. And I don't think they mean to do this a lot of the times, but sometimes, um, and I think some oneness Pentecostals would um, accept this as well, Sometimes they can sound Nestorian or think that there are two persons in the incarnation. Uh, there are other times where they can sound Eutychian or there's only one sort of mixed nature there. And so um, their ways of speaking can be multiple and it can be sort of hard to parse out. And that's sort of what I've tried to do a little bit in, in my work and what I've been trying to apply, you know, analytic theology to, to their views. So I know you mentioned your, your own work, I, and I want to just give a plug for your stuff. So I, I I don't know a lot of people, if there's anybody out there, and maybe that's part of the reason you want to do it, uh, is who who else is doing analytic theology applied to this particular area? I don't know of anybody else. And I found your stuff uh, really stimulating and really interesting. So I know you've got a thesis uh, that you just finished at Regent. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, I know you have an article in Theologica, which we'll talk about as well. And I'll have these in the show notes for our listeners who want to check them out. Uh, I highly recommend you grab them, uh, read them, because I know a lot of us come in contact with different various groups. And I think um, this is helpful to understand what people are actually thinking and what they're trying to claim. And a lot of stuff that you're doing is really interesting. So let's 
let's start, I guess, with before we talk about potential problems of the view, what makes oneness Pentecostalism about the Trinity attractive? What what are the reasons that someone would say, I want to believe this understanding of who God is? Yeah, this is a really good question to start with because it'll help us sort of appreciate. I mean, I want to appreciate my background. I also want to, you know, um, uh, be respectful to those views, and it helps us to think more dispassionately about this, I think. And I can sort of think of three reasons why their view might be attractive. The first is that it clearly safeguards the exclusive monotheism of the Bible. And I think that this is something that even uh, Trinitarians looking at it can agree with. And part of the reason I say that from looking at the literature and analytic theology um, is that there's even uh, discussions among Trinitarians themselves about which, you know, uh, models of, of the Trinity really safeguard that exclusive monotheism. And I mean, in particular, I'm thinking of Brian Leftow's work on uh, so-called Latin uh, Trinity, or he also calls anti-social uh, Trinitarianism. So um, I think that's one thing. Another is that they seek to derive all of their doctrines, including their view of God strictly from the Bible. They do inherit sola scriptura from Protestantism. They would be, I think, considered a part of uh, Protestantism and in particular a, a restorationist you know, kind of stream of, of that. And that can make it look attractive to, to Protestants as well. The third reason is, uh, and maybe, I mean, you can uh, tell me if I'm sort of hitting on something here, but I think that their doctrine of God really does drive the rest of their theological system. And I think that that's not always obviously the case in, you know, Western evangelical theology. And once you have something like that, that drives your view of uh, baptism, that drives your view of, uh, you know, um, how you live your life in the way that they, you know, tr try to live and preach and practice, that can look really attractive too. And that can um, sound really great to people who don't think that that's really going on in their own context. So those are a couple of things that I would say there. That's good. And you mentioned Brian Leftow's version of the Latin Trinitarianism and I can't remember it. You sent me a bunch of awesome notes that I was able to go through and I just, his view is so weird. Um, and to me, it seems like it would be right for the picking of oneness. And now that I think about it, I've been reading your thesis and that's part of what you do. So I guess that's a good segue. So in, in your master's thesis, you take revelation three twenty one, and you kind of apply this to oneness Pentecostalism and oneness theology and thinking about how this impacts that. So maybe we can just set a ground level foundation. What does this verse contribute to the discussion of oneness theology? Um, is, is it helping it? Is it hurting it? Is it opening new pathways for why, how they might uh, engage with, with theology and defining the Trinity? Yeah, I think it's some of all of those things. And so let me just sort of uh, read out the verse here. It says, To the one who conquers, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And this is the risen and exalted Christ speaking in one of the uh, seven letters in Revelation. And what I noticed reading this verse which I sort of just stumbled upon in a Greek exegesis class I was doing at Regent, is we find a comparison between the one who conquers and Jesus on the one hand and Jesus and the Father on the other hand. Namely, the, the conqueror is promised a seat um, on Christ's throne just as, and in the Greek that's a comparative particle, Christ was also granted a seat on the Father's throne. Now, it just seems at face value 
that this text is problematic for oneness because the comparison doesn't seem to hold if Jesus and the Father aren't really two um, numerically distinct subjects, Mm -hmm. is uh, the way that I would put it. And um, that this is the case, I I think I can cite two reasons for that, that I think even a oneness person should agree with. The first is that uh, David Bernard, who's the general superintendent of the UPCI, he in 2016 uh, or so uh, received his doctorate as well, which is published called The Glory of God in the Face of Jesus Christ. On page 66 and footnote 49, he lists this verse as what um, uh, as an example of a distinction between Jesus and, and God in the New Testament. And in one of his books, uh, The Oneness View of Jesus Christ, he actually spends several pages trying to explain this verse. So just that face value sort of uh, thing that I've, I've stated there, I think um, the fact that they're responding to it or that Bernard has um, sort of shows that. Now, what I argue with regard to this verse is that oneness Christology, no matter the form that it takes, isn't the best explanation of the verse. And so um, we need to unpack that a little bit, I think. When I say best explanation, I'm referring to a way of reasoning that's often called abductive reasoning. And um, that can sound a little scary, I guess, that term, but it really is best explanation reasoning. And I think that this is a common sense way that biblical scholars reason, that systematic theologians, uh, it's a way that they reason. If you are familiar with what that means and you're just sort of paying attention to the way that they argue, I mean, we do this in textual criticism, like what's the best explanation for, you know, why we got this textual variant or what's the best explanation for all sorts of things. You can see them argue this way. Mm-hmm. Now, in this verse, I think that there are four things that we need to explain. First, it's a promise to the one who conquers. Second, there's a real comparison on both sides of the verse. As I already said, there's even a comparative particle that's used there. The third thing is that the one who conquers really is personally present with Christ on his throne in some way. And that uh, uh, you can trace to the Greek being used there, the metopolis, the genitive case. Um, And fourth, Jesus in the book of Revelation, when you look at the way that he's described and the names that are used of him and of God in that book, he doesn't seem to be completely identified with the Father. And that seems consistent with what we have in this verse. So we also need to account for that as we try to explain the verse from from any sort of view, um, mm-hmm. including a oneness one. And um, should we get into the argument or do we want to stop yeah, go ahead. for a moment? No, keep, no, keep going in the argument. All right. So what I just ran through there are basically the first two chapters of my thesis. And in the third one, I sort of try to pick apart what I call the standard oneness view. And the standard oneness view makes the claim that Jesus is the Father incarnate. And I I spend a whole chapter and and bring in analytic theology and what some contemporary analytic theologians are doing there. Where we get to the main argument um, is in chapter four of my master's thesis. So as I've said, there's the standard oneness view, which says Jesus is the father incarnate. We also have what I've called the modified oneness views. And to my knowledge, I don't think anybody has considered that distinction. And to be honest, I'm not really quite sure if any oneness Pentecostal would accept a modified view, but I at least put it forward for consideration of of the verse. What that distinction comes down to as I explain it is this. Do God's modes or manifestations as Father and Son and Holy Spirit do those modes or manifestations occur, occur in one in the same life segment in God's life? Or in other words, are father and son overlapping manifestations somehow to God himself? If you say yes, that's the standard oneness view, and you can say Jesus is the father incarnate. 
if you say no, um, you get what I call the modified oneness view, where you say Jesus is God, the one God incarnate, but he is not the Father incarnate. So that sounds a little bit weird, and I'll explain that a little bit more. What I suggest is that um, this modified oneness view can basically use Brian Leftow's metaphysics for his Latin model of the Trinity. And in two papers in particular of his, um, one called The Latin Trinity, which is in Faith and Philosophy, which is now open access, so I'd recommend anybody to read that, and also a paper called uh, Modes Without Modalism, which is in a volume called Persons, Human, and Divine. So what Leftow argues at length is this. God's Trinitarian life is like or analogous to an individual who travels through time twice over, such that if you're observing this individual who's gone through time travel twice over, you see three things. Um, but at bottom, there is only one person or one substance there. You see three things on the public timeline, but in the life of this individual who's gone through time travel, there's only one substance. There's only uh, uh, one person there. So the example that he gives is we're at a dance show and we see three women dancing on a stage. But what really happened is one woman danced her number, traveled back in time once, did it again, um, you know, and then she does it a third time. So what you and I would end up seeing are what look like three women when there's actually only one there. So for Leftow, God lives out his life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. And these three life streams, as he calls them, they overlap with the public timeline that you and I are on at every point. So there's always these three persons. Now, this isn't to say that time has to exist for his uh, model to be true, because he says that this could be the way that God's life is been necessarily and eternally structured so now in those three life streams or the life processes the persons are distinct from one another but at bottom there's there's only one god now what i sort of run with is um uh, scott william who says that Leftow's view seems to amount to one Boethian person or an individual substance of a rational nature mm -hmm. living out his life as three Lockean or stream of consciousness persons. And I'll sort of just go with that and I do in the thesis as well. Now, the way that Leftow's view ends up Trinitarian is basically by stipulation. He says that the model that I've given doesn't rule out that God has had this structure to his life always. And what I suggest is if you just drop that stipulation as a oneness Pentecostal, you can use basically his view. And all you have to say is that he begins his life stream as the sun contingently rather than necessarily. And I mm -hmm. don't even say when that happens. It, could happen at the moment of creation. It could be sometime uh, in the Old Testament, or it could be at the time of the incarnation itself. So uh, that's the modified view on uh, a, a modified oneness view using Leftow. What you end up saying is that uh, Jesus is God incarnate, but he's not the Father incarnate, because on some level, they are distinct persons. They are distinct Lockean persons or streams of consciousness or life streams but at bottom there is only one substance that one boethian person who is living out his life in in these ways now when i explain those um those views and i start to run through the argument in the thesis what I say is that the modified oneness view is the best oneness explanation of Revelation 3.21. That's because we have a really robust understanding of modes, as I've tried to explain. And so we seem to have, on some level, a person called the Son who can really sit with the Father on the Father's throne. 
in the way that um, the one who conquers can sit with Christ on his throne, whatever we take that to mean. There's a real comparison there between the both sides of the verse. But ultimately, and uh, listeners will want to check this out as, as well, what you find in Hasker, William Hasker's responses to Leftow on Leftow's view, what this ultimately amounts to, though, is that Jesus is sitting with himself on his own throne. And that's just a feature of the view. That's not mm -hmm. like a polemic way of putting it. And in fact, Hasker doesn't say that Leftow is uh, uh, heretical for saying that, by the way. Um, he's explicit that, that he's not saying that. So what I then argue is that there are two explanations of the verse that meet all of the explanatory criteria that I lay out in chapter one of the thesis, and they don't have the same drawbacks and in fact just seem to um, explain the verse much more straightforwardly. Um, one of those is what I call the strong monarchy view of the Trinity, and there I'm referring to a sort of view that uh, Bo Branson has explained. Uh, and the second is a Socinian or so-called biblical Unitarian view. And I give both of those because I don't want this to be like a Trinity versus oneness thesis or something. Yeah. All I'm trying to do is make the modest claim that if you take some other view where Jesus and the Father just aren't uh, numerically one and the same subject, and you also don't have some of uh, those other claims um, in the modified oneness view, they just straightforwardly have a better explanation of the verse and don't have the same drawbacks. So that's essentially what I argue in the thesis, and we can go over any more of that if we want to. Yeah, so, I mean, when I was reading it, I, I was immediately struck, and I thought, I, I think you're right, using left out makes a lot of sense here. Um, and I know Brian left out is way smarter than me, so I'm sure if I asked him and told him I have no idea how this makes sense. Um, not only are my intuitions stretched to think that you could time travel in that type of way. I mean, number one, you have to buy into time travel. And number two, you have to buy into the those specific metaphysics of time travel. And then it's still weird to me, but it makes sense to be able to appropriate something like this for a oneness view. I think it fits quite nicely. Um, and the way you kind of explained it, I think that makes sense. Um, and I guess you, you mentioned what's, a, what's the guy's name? Uh, where is it? Who did the PhD dissertation? Um, uh, the Bernard. The yeah. David yeah. Bernard. Yeah. So you said he gives like several pages devoted to this verse. Correct. Um, I mean, how does he ultimately navigate it? Does he just say, well, that's just a difficult verse. We don't really know how to explain it or. Um, I didn't plan on making another plug here, but I recently responded to his view on my website in a blog post. And he largely wants to say that the verse and its concepts are symbolic. Okay. And what I also uh, want to argue there is if, even if we take a lot of the symbolism, we run into the same problems. So for example, in Revelation 4 and 5, you've got the one who sits on the throne, you've got the slain lamb in the middle of the throne, and the lamb ends up taking a scroll from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to avoid, um, you know, those two subjects being numerically distinct, Bernard says that, um, you know, in relation to all of this, that it's symbolic. And um, one issue there still is that even if it's symbolic, you wouldn't really expect Jesus and the Father still to be depicted that way. Yeah. So I think these, and that's largely the way that he wants to go with that verse and and uh, you know those other two chapters. But um, that's essentially what he does. There's more going on there, but uh, I do have a blog post on that. Okay. And I guess the, the other key question I wanted to ask when it comes to uh, oneness Pentecostalism, and I, it's, you so happen to have an article on this, so it works out quite nicely, is the problem of Jesus's prayers. And I've always thought, I think, I mean, this is a pretty 
a big one that I I've seen at least out there where you have Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane to his father. And even in my discussions with one of those Pentecostals, this has been like the verse for me that I'm like, I do not know how you make sense of this. And in your paper, you utilize Tom Morris's, uh, what is it? The logic of God incarnate. Um, and I guess in there, somewhere in there, he talks about something. I'll let you kind of, I guess, walk through, through exactly what he's saying and how you appropriate it. Um, but it, is this problem solvable? And I guess, how do, what is Morris's view and how might it help? Yeah, so I mean, that is a place that a lot of people will turn um, in responding to Oneness Pentecostals. And um, the response that Oneness Pentecostals want to give, because they believe in the Incarnation, is ultimately that this is explainable uh, by means of Christ's two natures. And I, I will say, by the way, that they are uh, friendly and accept, uh, in fact, say that they largely accept the definition of Chalcedon. So I don't want to attribute any um, uh, views that would not be commensurate with that. So when it comes to Tom Morris's book, he is trying to show that it makes sense and it's not a contradiction to say that Christ has two natures and that uh, certain thing, certain things that we could say about him don't end up affirming a contradiction about Christ, you know, that he's limited in knowledge and is omniscient mm -hmm. and stuff like that. His view, he calls the two minds view in the logic of God incarnate. And what's really interesting is just near the end of that book, he makes a concession to modalists. Um, and he says that, um, his two minds view can be used to block the inference from the fact that Jesus is praying to the conclusion that Jesus and the father must be numerically distinct. And that's kind of where a lot of people go. That's part of the conversation, sort of, as you mentioned, people will turn to Jesus prayers and say, you've got to have two numerically distinct subjects there. Um, Jesus can't just be the father if he's praying to him. And what I do in that paper in Theologica is I try to spell out a way that that could work on his view, but I think that it ultimately leads to some other common claims that Oneness Pentecostals make that I think they would have to give up. So sort of the way that the argument goes you don't have to use his entire view, Tom Morris's entire view. I think all that you really need is that there are two minds in Christ. Um, he calls them ranges of consciousness and that they are related in the proper way. They don't even have to be related in the way that Tom Morris says they are. In fact, Eleanor Stump argued in a review of the book that it was ultimately, um, I think it, that it was a contradiction, that you still end up with the same problems. And um, uh, so they don't have to be related in the way that he says they do if you accept Stump's arguments. And really, all that I'm going for as well is using Morris's definition of a full accessible belief set or the sort of beliefs that you have access to in your human mind or human range of consciousness, an epistemic possibility. And epistemic possibility is distinguished from metaphysical possibility. For something to be epistemically possible, it's basically just as long as my beliefs don't rule something out, that's epistemically or in my knowledge, that is a possible thing. Mm -hmm. So I just use that concept. Here's how I would simplify the argument in retrospect and in a discussion like this without running through that whole paper. <laughs> I think that there are three conditions that oneness Christology typically wants to satisfy. The first is an identity condition where Jesus and the Father are numerically one subject. There is an awareness condition where Jesus is aware that he and the Father are numerically one subject. And the way that you get to that is actually the fact that some of the standard oneness proof texts where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, I and the Father are one. Those are mm -hmm. two big text and John that they will turn to. Now, if Jesus is claiming that he is 
the father, then he has to be aware that he's one and the same subject as him. So there's also a third condition, though, which is that in the incarnation, it is genuine humanity. And there was a panel of scholars in this discussion that took place over several years at the Society of Pentecostal Studies between Trinitarian and Oneness Pentecostals. And in the published um, paper that kind of lays out where they agree and disagree with one another in uh, the journal uh, Pneuma, which is the Society for Pentecostal Studies journal, the Oneness Party says this, in every way that we relate to God, Jesus related to God, except that he did not need to repent or be born again. So I take that to mean that Jesus has genuine human experiences, just like you and I do, in the way that he relates to God, he has those same sorts of experiences. Now, the claim of that paper is that a standard oneness view, or a view that claims that Jesus is the Father incarnate, can't satisfy all three of those conditions at once. If you take the genuine humanity condition seriously, Mm -hmm. I argue Jesus simply can't be aware in his human range of consciousness or his human mind that he's numerically one subject with the Father. And I think what I'm drawing upon there seems pretty straightforward and hopefully hard to argue against. And it's just this, that when you and I pray, you know, Skylar prays and and Jordan prays to God, we experience what it's like to pray to God as someone else because we have the belief that we're not God. And so what I'm saying there is that our beliefs about our fundamental identity or beliefs about who I am shape your conscious experience. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what Bain and Chalmers define as what's called phenomenal consciousness, or basically just the what it's like to experience certain things. But what I want to say is that if the oneness or standard oneness view holds to the awareness condition, Jesus knows that he's the Father. And so it seems like he doesn't have the same experience that you and I do when we pray contrary to the genuine humanity condition. So just to give an example of why I think that's pretty clear that our beliefs about who we are affect our experiences is I have a credit card that has my name on it, and Mm -hmm. I believe that I am the individual to whom that, that account and to whom that name refers. And I spend that money all the time, and I don't feel guilt, and let's just sort of assume I'm a moral guy, and I wouldn't spend the money if it's not mine. Right. I would feel guilty, assuming that you know I'm a moral guy, if I didn't believe that I was Skyler, and I'm using his credit card. So the belief that I have that I am numerically identical to Skyler McManus shapes the way that I have experiences in my everyday life. And that is analogous to and maps onto Jesus' prayers to the Father. So again, what I think has to be given up in a standard oneness view is if you want to say that Jesus has a genuine human experience of prayer like you have in Gethsemane, and they really do want to maintain that. Mm-hmm. I think that they do have to give up the awareness condition. And part of the problem with that and why that's sort of a high cost for them is just historically in the movement and in it today, you would have to give up some of those standard proof texts that I already quoted. Um, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You would have to give those up. And if they would like to do that, um, that's sort of what I what I argue. Nice. So I guess one thing I want to, I want to really close out with as far as interacting with oneness Pentecostalism and understanding it better is understanding the cost to oneness Pentecostalism. And I think most 
uh, of our listeners probably are not one of Pentecostals, and they probably view it as detrimental to traditional Christianity in some way, uh, shape, or form. So my question is, number one, do you think it's detrimental to traditional Christianity? And if it is, what's the best way to engage it? Is it something you think that we need to, um, you know, actually try to convince our oneness friends that they're wrong on this? Or is this something that's not as serious and we can be good friends with them and, and not really have a problem with that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I have family members, several of which are involved in ministry, um, are even missionaries to other countries. I absolutely think that one as Pentecostal should be engaged on personal and in uh, academic levels. And part of the reason that I say that is when we say traditional Christianity, I mean, I hope that that goes back to what the apostles preached. And if what the apostles preached and taught and handed down was not what oneness Pentecostals say in a number of regards, what they actually did say, that can't be um, diminished in any way by what a oneness Pentecostal says. I mean, if traditional Christianity is making claims that are the opposites of what one as Pentecostals do. I mean, just like any true claim, there's not going to be anything that they say that makes that true claim false. And I don't think that, um, and basically that just means that there's no reason to have fear or any sort of stigma in engaging with them and that sort of thing. And hopefully the way that I've put that doesn't sound pompous or, or whatever, but I'm, I'm just saying that if you think that they're wrong, you don't have to be afraid to talk about the truth. Now, when it comes to the individual lives of believers, in my sort of experience, and maybe in the experience of, of others, if you want to engage with them, I think the best way to do so is to discuss what was really apostolic, what goes back to the preaching of the apostles. And once we make those sorts of claims, how do those help us make sense of what happens in the following, you know, several centuries? And I think that there's a couple ways that, that we can do that depending on what your view of these subjects are. One of them is the Eucharist. And I haven't spoken a lot about this, but having a, uh, a real presence sort of view on the Eucharist, I think, is sort of problematic for oneness Pentecostalism as it's currently practiced. If you believe in that sort of view, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to see why oneness Pentecostalism, broadly, in my experience, takes a memorialist or maybe at best a spiritual presence type view. So if you don't think that either of those views are correct. I think that we're right to discuss what the Bible teaches on that, mm -hmm. and if that makes sense of the following Christian centuries. And again, this is because one is Pentecostal, say, and they actually use the term for themselves of being apostolic. Capital A apostolic, or apostolic Pentecostals, is another way they refer to themselves. I as I started to look into these things, and in fact, largely because I read James Arcati's book on mm -hmm. the incarna incarnational model of the Eucharist, I sort of began to see that there is more of a case to be made there. And as I started to read the Church Fathers, I saw that as well, and that even with regard to the frequency of uh taking communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, and oneness Pentecostal churches doesn't line up with the New Testament or earliest, you know, Christian witnesses mm -hmm. thereafter. And in particular, if all of those are commensurate with a real presence view, that's not typically their view, which um, seems sort of strange to me as I started to look into that. So I think that's one area worth discussing. 
I don't want to get too much into this, but also eschatology doing the same sort of thing. What does the Bible uh, teach on these issues, and does it help make sense of you know what Christians later on in the immediately following centuries are claiming? Largely, oneness Pentecostalism is dispensationalist and holds to the rapture theory. And when you look back, at least in, you know, say the second century and third century and thereafter, it doesn't seem to obviously be a view that's there. So if we want to say that our movement is apostolic or something, we need to have that conversation. And I think we need to have it openly. And I'm also not claiming here that just because something perhaps came later in history that it's automatically false. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that if your claim is that what your denomination says is apostolic Christianity, we should really be opening to open to discussing these things. And the third area, which goes to the heart of what really brought about one is Pentecostalism in the 20th century is baptism itself. When we look to the earliest statements, for example, of the rule of faith in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because Oneness Pentecostals do believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does what they affirm line up with those statements of the rule of faith, and is that a good or a bad thing? If you look, for example, at Irenaeus's statement in On the Apostolic Preaching, he lays it out pretty early in chapter 6 and 7. It doesn't seem like something that they could accept, mm-hmm. and that's something that we should openly discuss. And we also need to openly discuss that even if they're right about the baptismal formula in Jesus' name, if it was the or the only baptismal formula, say, in the book of Acts and you know throughout the apostolic age— it seems really hard to account for the formula of Matthew 28:19, how it gets appropriated, say, in the Didache and thereafter. And I mean, even in the Didache, it makes the allowance for a triple pouring. And later on, we also have the practice of triple immersion. Hmm. And I've never really run into and had the conversations yet on how the oneness view makes sense of all of those sorts of things. So there are a lot of areas that we should openly discuss and um, personally and I think academically on these issues with them. Because if you do disagree with them, that's not going to change your view from being true to false. But we can approach this in an open and academic spirit about these things. And I think remain friends and in my case, remain loving family. And that's what I would try to foster in my work. For those who are interested in this topic and do want to dive deeper and understand understand more, in your mind, what are the the most I guess the key resources they need to get their hands on, both for in favor of it and against it? Now, this is largely skewed by my background, but I think the foremost defender of oneness is David Bernard. And his works are accessible. They're now in Kindle format. They're Um, widely accessible. If you want to know the oneness view and how it responds to various objections, his book, The Oneness of God, is the go-to place for that. We have hardly talked about their view of salvation, but Mm -hmm. he also has a book dedicated to that called The New Birth, which I would recommend to readers. There is also an apostolic study Bible which they have come out with. And in fact, the notes for that are are available in Logos Bible software. So you don't even have to buy like a bound version of that. If you want to see their notes from scholars um, and other individuals in their movement on how they think about scripture, that's a good resource for that. If you're looking for something on a scholarly level, I've mentioned David Bernard's The Glory of God in the Face of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. and essentially his uh, argument is that a sort of oneness view is the best explanation for why we get exalted language of Jesus in Paul. That is the gist of of his thesis. And David Norris's book called I Am, A Oneness Pentecostal Theology, 
those are both um, worth digesting and, and going over and discussing if you're looking for something for the oneness view. If you want to see responses to oneness, Gregory Boyd's book from, I think, the early 90s is still probably the best popular level book. And it's pretty wide-ranging. It doesn't just address the um, the view of God, but also their uh, soteriology and other subjects as well. It's called Oneness Pentecostals and the Trinity. It can be rather caustic at points, but I still think that it's probably the best place to go for a popular level treatment. Coming out pretty shortly, and I don't know when, but my friend Michael Burgos is coming out with a third edition of, of his book called Against Oneness Pentecostalism, and it's really an exegetical uh, work examining you know, Christ's involvement in creation. He has a chapter on the angel of the Lord and that sort of stuff, and those are worth checking out. For the history of the movement, if you want a oneness perspective, you want to try to get Talmadge French's book called Our God is One. And for a Trinitarian author, although his work has um, been said to be, I think, sympathetic to oneness and treats it very fairly, is David Reed's book called In Jesus' Name. And if you want to hear debates on oneness Pentecostalism, I have a page for that on my website. So that's a lot of resources, maybe more than listeners normally get on your show. But because that's this good. is so unfamiliar, those are some good places to start. Yeah. And I know you just mentioned your website. I, I want to, I'll link to that so that people can go there. You've got a lot of resources on there. You've got your stuff on there. Um, so for people who are wanting to follow you, I'm assuming your website is the key place to go to keep up with new work that's being posted, right? Yeah. So it's just SkylarMcManus.com. I try to regularly blog and I kind of just keep it as a resource page too. I mean, if there's stuff on the internet I can't find that I find I want all the time, like I make a page for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to blog and have other useful and, and cool stuff that you can find around the internet. And I'm, I'm not always talk, talking about this subject either, yeah. but I hope to continue to do some other things. I hope to do some work in the metaphysics of baptism um, as it relates to oneness as well. And we'll just sort of see how it goes. Well, that's fantastic. And I, and so I hope uh, that you do keep doing these things because I think it's really interesting and I, I'm excited to see where all that takes you. So for our listeners who've been listening, I, I definitely want to make sure that you guys check this out. Obviously, his thesis, he's made it open access, so you don't even need to have a library subscription. You can Google it, find it, and download it yourself. Uh, and I know Theologica, I think, is open access too, so that one's out there as well, uh, which is great stuff. So I want to issue a huge thank you for coming on the show and talking with us about this. Um, maybe we'll do one in the future on their view of salvation and walk through what that looks like because I think that's also an obviously a really interesting aspect um, but again thanks for taking the time with us and for those who have been listening you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists and uh, hopefully more will be created as time goes on uh, but for now uh, we are we are your source for this exciting news <laughs> alright we'll talk to you guys soon Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.